This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The combination of roads, bridges, rails, airports that make up the majority of our infrastructure here in the United States is certainly a complex one. It's also something that requires a constant state of repair. But as we know, many pieces to that infrastructure break down. Or as a new paper from the Public Policy Initiative here at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School calls it, they may not be resilient enough. The paper looks at ways to improve the infrastructure from a policy perspective. The authors of this brief joining me here in studio to discuss their work. Gina Tan is a postdoctoral researcher with the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Jeff Sikowski is the managing director of the of that center. And our friend Howard Kunruth, her co-director of the center, as well as professor of decision sciences and business economics. Welcome to you all. Great having you here today. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you. So infrastructure is obviously something that's been talked about and discussed a lot, and, and and some things have been done, but clearly it looks like, you know, from from the, the paper and the brief that you've written, we are still a long ways from it, and from a policy perspective, it feels like we're a long way from it. Right. So infrastructure in the U.S. is underfunded, and uh, maintenance and upkeep always don't happen as often as they should or to the extent that they should, and this can pose a problem in normal conditions, but poses even more of a, a risk when there's some kind of disruption or disaster that happens. And, and the interesting thing, Jeff, is the fact that there are so many potential disruptions out there, whether it be normal wear and tear, human error, obviously the threat of terror. I, I mean, it, it, right. it does stretch a lot of boundaries at this point. Right. So at the Risk Center, we focus a lot on natural hazards. And you could just think back to last year, record-breaking losses in sure. 2017. Yeah. So these are, although these are low-probability events, I mean, they happen often enough, right, not in any one area, but over time and space. And they have a major impact. I mean, you could think here in the Northeast with Hurricane Sandy yeah. uh, a number of years ago. And I, as I mentioned, just everything that happened last year. So these, the, you know, these types of disruptions are becoming more and more normal. Well, let's just stay on that for one second, because obviously what happened in Houston and obviously the, the, the hurricane that rolls in and then the damage and all of the flooding. We talk a lot about uh, the people and the houses and the, and the damage mm-hmm. that's done. And I think secondary ends up being the roads and the infrastructure piece of it. Right. So what you'll see a lot on the news is the impact to people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You might see clips of things that have happened to infrastructure, but when that money comes down the road later on from the federal government, the majority of that money doesn't actually go to the people. It goes to public infrastructure, private infrastructure. And so I think I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head for Sandy, but say it was about $100 billion worth of recovery efforts there. Probably about two-thirds of that went to sort of more infrastructure-related things, less to homeowners. So, Howard, what do you think on the policy side we need to start to address? I mean, things that obviously I'm sure maybe have been talked about but, but still haven't gotten done at this point. Well, just to follow up on what Gina and Jeff said and what you were raising, I mean, the fact is we're in a new era of catastrophe. These events are now happening much more frequently. And so we have to think about the appropriate policies that we need to uh, to deal with them. I think the two things that we talk about in our issue brief uh, and the one that the Wharton Risk Center has been focusing on is there is a role for insurance to play in terms of helping to protect that. Mm-hmm. But much more important, it's tying the 
insurance to mitigation and to risk reduction. And there we have some challenges. Uh, For one thing, we have the Stafford Act, which is an act that has been passed by Congress that really indicates that there's a large amount of money that will go to public infrastructure Mm -hmm. uh, if it is a federally declared disaster. When you have that, you have immediately a notion that, well, why should I insure if I know I'm going to get funded? So right away you have the, the feeling. And sometimes you don't even get that money. Sometimes the money has to come from other sources. Secondly, there's a long delay in the in actually getting that money forward to uh, repair the infrastructure. That was clearly the case in Hurricane Sandy. They could, it took years, really, sure, yeah. for them to get the money to actually repair it. And third, and most important, the Stafford Act has never encouraged mitigation. It's, it basically hasn't prevented it, but it says you can't necessarily do things that doesn't that uh, Im- improves the structure. Well, let, let's roll it back here for a second. For people that don't know, what is the Stafford Act? Okay. Stafford Act, uh, I mean, others can comment on this as well. The Stafford Act is basically an act of Congress that says we will give 75% at least to public infrastructure if it turns out this is a presidentially declared disaster. In the case of Katrina, it was 100%. Uh, And they can raise that amount. And the question is, who gets it, number one? How long does it take to get it, number two? And three, does it encourage mitigation, number three? And the the notion is basically uh, it doesn't prevent money from improving the structure, but it generally doesn't give – it basically says repair it to where it previously was. Others can comment on that, Gina and Jeff may want to say a word about that. Well, I, just, I would just focus on this notion of, again, like these recovery dollars that come in yeah. after, after the event has occurred. And as Howard mentioned, right, not only is there a delay, what we've seen in recent times, there's a delay in that funding, but that over time there's the thinking that more and more of this money is going to become less and less available, right? And so yeah. the sponsors of this project for us is the Department of Homeland Security, and, you know, this is an important issue for them because – they realize that it, we can't keep um, spending on the backside of these events. We need to try to get people to be better insured or, as Howard mentioned, to couple that with mitigation before the events happen. Jan? Yeah, I guess I would, I would add that um, the issue here is the spending but also the impact on communities. Um, transportation is really important to how a community operates, the movement of people and goods um, in all different forms. And when uh, there's a delay in getting transportation systems back up to speed after some kind of disruption, it really impacts people's livelihoods and their lives in the community. And so this delay that we're talking about is really it really can create a problem in communities and can cause business impacts and personal impacts. One of the the pieces that that you discuss in the brief uh, also involves Amtrak, and especially for people in in this part of the country, the Northeast Quarter, who use Amtrak a lot going from Washington all the way up to Boston. It's an important component uh, to uh, to the system. And the interesting thing is how you you designate Amtrak as being kind of quasi-public. Uh, take us through what, what Amtrak really needs to deal with and, and, and be able to look at, because you mentioned Sandy, Jeff. When, when Sandy hit, I remember the, the train station in Trenton was basically underwater for about a week or two because of, storm, of, of the storm surge from that. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, they're, 
they're uh, they're in a tough spot, right? So you think of last year, even you had these um, what was it four nor'easters that we had, yeah, and they ended up shutting down their their system for at least one of those days, right? And uh, they um, they need to have uh, insurance in place. To they own a lot of these lines, uh-huh. these rail lines that go through a number of you know, as you said, Boston all the way down to D.C. and across the country. And it's it's a big system for them to manage and um, to have the proper insurance and risk mitigation in place. And they are this, you know, they're not a public entity, but they're private as well, right? They're this quasi sort of uh, agency. So um, I'll just leave it. In, Howard and Gina can chime in here, but they're in kind of a tough spot on this. Mm-hmm. Gina? Yeah, I would add that, um, you know, particularly for people that ride Amtrak in the Northeast Corridor, you'll notice that a lot of their infrastructure is situated very close to the water. Um, And so uh, sea level rise and climate change, you know, is expected to have a particularly big impact on their infrastructure in the the Northeast. And so resilience is something they're really starting to think about and trying to figure out how they can, you know, keep minimizing delays as weather conditions really impact their rail lines. Howard? The only other point I'd make, and Jeff uh, highlighted that, is that they're quasi-public, and so they may possibly be expecting funding from the federal government. They may not get it. They may have to do this on their own. And I think the notion of their considering insurance, and that's part of the case study that uh, the center has done uh, with Amtrak, as you pointed out, uh, that is uh, really raises a lot of issues with respect to making sure before the next disaster they understand what they're responsible for, what they aren't, and whether there are ways they can get insurance. And just a a couple other things I would add. Um, And, you know, they own a lot of those lines, but they do have to share them with other entities. Sure, yeah. So here in Philadelphia, they they share them with SEPTA. Which is the regional regional transit here. And the same thing in New Jersey with New Jersey Transit as well. Yeah. So it's not only when something happens to the Amtrak lines, it, it impacts other rail systems as well. But one thing we've talked about is for them, from a resiliency standpoint, and I, you know, mentioned they're in a tough spot, but they don't necessarily have a redundancy that they can put into place, right? So if a rail line goes down, it's not like there's a, another rail line next to it that sure. they can use. Yeah, right. Right. You know, if you think of like airports, you can kind of reroute to other airports or other. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so for 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 transit like that, I mean, it's it's a really difficult situation because if they get shut down, the whole system is is down. Well, since you bring up the airports, what are what are the things that the airports and the airlines need to consider moving forward with with a lot of these issues that are coming up to play? Um, one thing that, that uh, we touched on in our research that um, has been impacting perhaps air travel more than other types of transportation is cyber risk. Um, sure. And yeah. air systems are, um, you know, reliant on, you know, IT systems really to to route their whole network and to load passengers and, you know, to, to, to manage all that they do. And so um, – an emerging risk that they're really dealing with now is preventing cyber attacks and dealing with protecting their information. Well, we've seen, what, twice, I think, in the last year or year and a half, uh, an air carrier has had a temporary stop on their uh, on their planes uh, around the country because of of uh, of, a, of an IT issue. Exactly. Um, and, you know, this is, like I said, an emerging risk. So there's a lot of work to be done in understanding um, cyber risks and cyber attacks and figuring out how to prevent them and also how to insure against them, um, you know, as, as, uh, as the risk continues to increase. 
what do you think we're and part of this uh, discussion i think also goes to where we are with public private partnerships and, and whether or not we are going to see more of those moving forward in, in some of these cases because of the fact that that in many cases either the state government or the federal government can't address the funding needs that, that need to occur. Are we are we headed more along that way? Well, I, I think just to build on what Jeff and Gina have said and your question, uh, we have an interdependency issue here that really may require the public and private sector kinds of partnerships because when you have an airline that goes out or that can't function, that has impacts on the whole system. Jeff's point about the only one rail line, that also impacts on the entire system. So what we have here really is – a, a challenge. And what it also does, as we've talked about, is it affects essentially business interruption. They could cause that. It could cause problems uh, because the transportation system isn't functioning with a whole set of other factors. So this may really require the notion of well-enforced regulations and standards to try to deal with this issue. This is a problem that we're facing in all areas, but it certainly comes up over here. And so when you raise the issue of public-private partnerships, you can say, look, you would like to have private insurance, let's say. We can talk about that, and that's certainly what we've been focusing on as a part of this uh, issue brief, where the uh, private companies could come in. But you also are going to have insurers who are going to be very interested in in standards being enforced and also being able to protect. So there really is a linkage between these two in a way that I think we have to pay attention to. And a a lot of these insurers already are being pressured from a financial perspective because of all of these storms and because of all these issues and the payouts that they're having, I'm guessing they have multiplied over the last five to 10 years in comparison to what we saw back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, correct? Right. So, I mean, they have their own ways of sort of offsetting some of that tail end of that risk through reinsurance or other types of products. But I think the key issue here in terms of like the public-private partnership, one thing that we talk about as a recommendation in the brief is this uh, the availability of information, better data around these types of risks, better sharing of that information right. amongst these different entities. And to your point, though, from an insurance perspective, what that would allow for is for a better underwriting of the risk from the insurer's perspective. So that the more data that they they have available, the better that they can model these types of risks and what those impacts would be yeah. to the system, then that allows for hopefully the better – uh, risk management of that through insurance, but also, as Howard mentioned earlier, we you know we really want to couple that with mitigation, right? Not to yeah. have that. So, you know, in terms of public-private partnerships, there's this uh, information sharing and analysis organization um, that have been developed in in the cyber arena. These ISOs, mm. DHS has um, advocated for these, where these groups can uh, can bind together and they agree to share information amongst each other right. around these sort of like cyber threats or other things that's just very sensitive information and it allows for that to happen so that the data sharing can go on and then you can s- start to better manage the risks. But I, I find it interesting you, you bring up the, the data sharing part of it, uh, Gina, because of the fact that, you know, we have so much data that is out there. Uh, you can probably make very informed decisions on all of that uh, data as long as you share it. And as long as you have that communication between organization. Well, exactly. On both the insurance side and on the infrastructure side, um, you know, a lot of this information is very sensitive. And, um, you know, infrastructure uh, managers need to keep their a lot of their information to themselves, you know, to, to prevent 
information about their systems getting into the hand of a terrorist or, or you know, some other malicious party. Um, right. And then on the insurance side, um, you know, there's regulations they have to deal with, um, you know, of maybe of an antitrust nature um, that prohibit them from, you know, sharing certain types of information. So it's important that there be some organization that can help facilitate that information sharing. There's also in, in this brief that you talk about, and I found it interesting in that, I mean, there are the core elements of infrastructure, which we have kind of laid out here, but you take it even as far out as looking at the locks and the dams that we have, you know, in this country as well. And, and especially the locks, which on many waterways are very important from an economic perspective of moving product up and downriver in, in this country right there are, you know there are a lot of uh, intricate parts within these systems and you know just to take it a step back it's not as though these infrastructure managers don't have this on their radar screen it's just you know we come back to what we how we started they're underfunded yeah. right typically and um, they have a lot of other risks that are more I don't want to say short-term, but are more immediate for them, right? Right, More day-to-day liabilities that they have to deal with, right, if you think of transportation systems. And so it's a, a lot of these, these risks kind of, I don't want to say crowd out, but, you know, you're dealing with the possibility of this major event happening yeah. and as opposed to, well, I had – 10 people slip and fall in my train station today and I need to have liability coverage for them uh, on the flip side. So it's it's kind of this how do you how do you how do you think about these events that are you know they have these really big impacts but have you know lower probabilities and you know how do they better prepare for those? Well, we mentioned the the the, the public private side of things, but I, I guess then it's also just important in terms of of policy and funding of what's being done at both the federal level, but mm-hmm. also at the state and local level Absolutely. to deal with a lot of these issues as well. Correct? Yeah. No, I think that uh, the point that Gina made earlier about communities being a really uh, being a really important part of all of this is critical, and local local government has to play a role. And the question I think always comes down, and we've discussed this before in the other context is who pays? Uh, Who is going to be responsible at the end of the day? If you have a Stafford Act, which is, and people may even misperceive what the Stafford Act is going to do, you're going to have very little incentive on the part of local governments and other groups to actually provide a better system. So I think you really have to have a clarification on who is going to pay and have some notion of where there may be responsibilities at the local and state. We're obviously moving in this direction today when we're, when we have uh, a, a Congress and president who is saying we really want to have less government. What does that mean? Right. Maybe less federal government, maybe more local and community responsibility. The question is, how do you get that? But I think there's one other point I just want to make that relates back to what Gina indicated uh, in, the, in the context of the information challenges with respect to that, with the antitrust laws, with the idea of when can information be shared? This is a project that really is supported, as Jeff has said, by the Department of Homeland Security. And so if we have a Department of Homeland Security as a central vehicle here, there may be really a role of sharing information that can come out through the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this in the National Flood Insurance Program, where they actually have a program where you actually share a lot of data that FEMA shares. Well, the, uh, that's part of DHS. 
There's no reason why one couldn't think about ways that the federal government and DHS could help provide, particularly if we're dealing with security issues and other issues that everyone is uh, concerned about. There may be ways to really try to provide that data in such a fashion so that you really could get the kind of public-private partnerships that you'd like to see. Gina? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, the, the federal government, I think this is really a role that they could play in facilitating these um, partnerships to share information. And then, you know, I think, again, to, to emphasize some of the benefits of sharing this information, it allows for new insurance products, um, better insurance products that then improve the resilience of infrastructure systems. And, um you know, the more information that that is shared and that helps understand, you know, the risks that these infrastructure systems are facing, the better the uh, mitigation measures can be um, identified and implemented. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of follow up on this and, you know, a big focus of this brief was on this this notion of having insurance in place. Right. Yeah. This, this sort of gap that we've seen with with the critical infrastructure uh, and not having necessarily the proper amount of insurance in place, right? And then that's why they're going to get recovery funds, uh, yep. you know, after the event. So a big focus on that was to trying to meet up the supply and demand of insurance for infrastructure uh, entities. But, you know, as the project has evolved, it's kind of – it's focused more as insurance is just one component of resilience. Yeah. And when yeah. you're thinking about resilience, right, to your point of, well, it's not just federal – it's state and local. Yeah. And as we talked about before, too, it's not just going to be government agencies. It's going to be Amtrak interacting with SEPTA. It's, a lot of this is around, I, I guess we would classify this as kind of governance within these entities, that, that they understand and that they're communicating with their communities, yeah. with the groups that rely on them. If something happens, here's, here's going to be the ramifications for you. Yeah. And we need to all sort of be on the same page as to how we can sort of better deal with that as a, as a group collectively. And, and I guess to a degree also when you think of something like the George Washington Bridge in, in New York and how much traffic there is on the George Washington Bridge on a daily basis. And if something were to happen to that bridge, the impact on the economy in and around New York City, the mobility in and around that area, right. all the businesses that use that bridge back and forth – to either transport goods or just you know move in general, that's a that's a key component. Sure, and I'm and I'm sure these conversations are happening, but you don't want to have something happen to the GW Bridge, and then trying to figure out what you're going to do to reroute activities around that. Like, yeah, you want to have those conversations in place before that, and so that there's this connection between whoever is managing that piece of infrastructure and the other aspects around that and the state and local governments and even the federals. Howard? The hardest thing to get uh, to follow through on what Jeff was suggesting is to get people to think about this before the disaster occurs. Yeah. That is the hard challenge because the agenda of every one of these parties is such that this is in the back of their minds. They are hoping it's not going to happen. They don't want to think about it. We have found that in every discussion we've had on this project and other projects that the Risk Center has done. How do we get everyone to understand that there are economic incentives now yeah. for doing these things? 
so that we can actually have the kind of dialogue as to what would happen if the George Washington Bridge goes under and 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 actually construct worst case scenarios. And I think that's one of the suggestions that I think we would want to make is to ask oneself, uh, is there a way to get to local and community and federal to the public sector as well as the private sector scenarios as to what could happen and yeah. then have people pay attention now to a scenario today rather than saying it's such a low probability we don't even want to think about but, that scenario. But, okay, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I was just going to add to that, though. And, and so we, we look at it as insurance can play a key role in that activity. So it's to get organizations not to just think about it as insurance as something that sits on the shelf in case something bad happens. Yeah. But it helps them to actively manage that risk and to, to get other benefits along the way as opposed to just having that policy in place. Yeah. So it's more of, as Howard is suggesting, stuff that they're doing on a daily basis, right? So this is why this – between the, the insurance and the mitigation needs to sort of go hand in hand. And, and part of it also, I, I think that when you think about all of these potential touch points that need to be addressed, a lot of people normally wouldn't associate – Okay, if there's something that goes wrong with the George Washington Bridge or something, you know, we need to have that insurance component there to be able to to get a quicker turnaround. A lot of people have the assumption that, oh, well, if something happened, it's the government. It's the city of New York. It's the state of New York. It's their responsibility right off the bat. So we're talking about a conversation that really needs to broaden exceptionally in the years to come. Right. And there is no like one size fits all for how this infrastructure Correct. is managed. Right? right. So some of it's public, some of it's private, some of it's quasi, you know, public private, whatever we called it from before. And trying to understand how those different entities manage that risk and assess it is is, is complicating. If I could add just one point to what uh, uh, Jeff was saying. If New York City could be given a seal of approval for saying, look, you have done the sets of things that a city should be doing to be able to somehow protect uh, the businesses, the residents, and whatnot from the kinds of disasters, and that the federal government that's a role that DHS could certainly play, yeah. a then they become a model. They become something that other communities can also think about. So I think the, one of the challenges is to have some leaders here yeah. that get recognized now. Uh, and that has been done in other areas. And the Environmental Protection Agency gives seals of approval for companies that, involve, uh, that really help out. Yeah. So that is a challenge challenge we face, and we would be very, very interested in trying to figure out, with a lot of help from other stakeholders, how we meet that challenge. Thank you all for coming in today. Greatly appreciate it. Great work. Thank you. Great. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.